The Guardian. Last week, the UN launched a report characterizing the state of the climate crisis, the emergency situation our planet is now in. We remain on track for a catastrophic warming of three degrees above pre industrial levels. Alongside this is the accelerating annihilation of wildlife on Earth and the pollution of our most precious resources air, water, and land. It feels overwhelming to face such vast and all-encompassing issues. We know what we need to do. Drastically reduce and reverse carbon entering the atmosphere and our impact on the natural environment. So the next question is how? Can we individually make a difference? And should we even be the ones shouldering responsibility? Or should politicians, companies and global organisations be leading the charge? I've talked to so many different groups over the years who have rationales for how it's not them that needs to be the lead actor on this. You know, businesses saying they have to wait for their customers, they have to follow the market, and politicians saying they have to follow the electorate, and individuals saying, oh, well, you know, I'd love to make change, but really it's down to the politicians or the businesses, isn't it? It's not. It's up to all of us all together. I'm Natalie Grover, and this is Science Weekly. How we tackle the climate and environmental crises isn't exactly a simple puzzle to unravel. Everyone has different opinions. For the world's billionaires, the answer seems to be investments in green and carbon capture technology. Some researchers suggest that new radical economic models like degrowth, decreasing our consumption of material goods and services, might be the way out. Others want to stop the use of fossil fuels entirely and immediately. And there's even an argument to reduce how much the sun hits the earth. To get some insight into this particularly sticky problem, I spoke to Mike Berners-Lee, the author of There Is No Planet B, who's crunched the numbers on everything from flying to fracking to produce a guide on how to avoid giving the Earth a best-before date. Mike first published There Is No Planet B in 2019, but recently unveiled a new edition. So the first thing I was curious about was what compelled him to add to his initial ideas just a few years later. The last couple of years have been a really fast-changing scene, even without the pandemic. So much has happened in the process of the world waking up to the climate and wider environmental crisis, as well as the science getting more scary. So it really felt as though you know, enough new stuff had happened that it was a very good opportunity to put in some really important new material. Mike, in, in the last few years... We've seen quite a significant shift in attitudes and awareness of how critical climate change is. And and arguably, a lot of this has been down to global protests uh, led by activists like Greta Thunberg, who've become quite mainstream. But it feels like it's hard to measure the impact of these types of events. What's your view on the role of these protests? I think done in the right way, it's clear that protests um, can be uh, hugely influential and, and beneficial. So, you know, when No Planet B first came out at the beginning of 2019, that was before the school's kids had really started taking to the streets and before Greta Thunberg had really, she just started, she was just starting to make a name for herself and it was before Extinction Rebellion. And, um, you know, it's pretty clear that all those movements between them, um, you know, for example, created the political space for the UK government to feel that it was able to increase its targets to um, 
zero carbon by, by 2050, which is a really good step in the right direction, even if it's not enough. Um, so, and you know, the, the, uh, the inquiries that I'm getting in my, at Small World Consulting from the business community have really changed in nature. You know, there's, for a start, there's a, there's now a stampede for net zero. Everybody wants to do it. And we spend our lives trying to make sure that people do it to a really high standard. Um, the very encouragingly, we're getting asset managers asking us, how can we properly assess our portfolios to see whether the companies that are in it are actually pushing for the kind of systemic change that we so badly need to see? And I think it's, you know, it's really, in some ways, it's really heartening. Whilst the science has got, over the last two years, whilst the science has got notably more scary, I think, um, it's also true to say that the long, slow process of humanity waking up properly to the situation we're in feels like it has begun in earnest. Long way to go, but it's begun. You know, there are people who point out, um, you know, we should perhaps be holding companies and banks and politicians to account. You know, how is it how is it helpful to have people getting out on the street and shouting or shutting down roads and bridges? How do you sort of respond to that kind of criticism? We have a full-on climate and wider environmental emergency on our hands, and we have to get the change. So if taking to the streets is what it takes to make that happen in a short time frame, then that's what needs to be done. And I don't say this as somebody who instinctively thinks, oh, goody, that, that'll be fun. It's got to be cleverly done. And I think if you look at the way that Extinction Rebellion went about its its protest at its very best, I think it was really brilliant. I think it's it's so important that they emphasize the values that I emphasize strongly in my book. I talk about three values of respecting all people, absolutely whoever they are, and respecting all elements of the environment and respecting truth. And all those three themes were very strongly played out by Extinction Rebellion. The other thing that they really got right at their best was they were a very positive movement. You know, they gave a real flavor of how they stood for a better world. You know, London was a better place to be when there was bands playing on, on Waterloo Bridge and free food being given out. And I think if I was to advise Extinction Rebellion now, and I, in fact, in the updates in Urbanic B, I, I do humbly offer, you know, some, some pointers to what I think they could do to become more effective going forward. And I think it's about being really positive, making sure that if anything they do is disruptive, then it's outweighed by other things that they do that are seen by everybody to be positive. In the case of Extinction Rebellion and Fridays for Future and the school kids, I had quite a bit of feedback from politicians and from people in, in the Climate Change Committee that the political space that was opened up by those protests enabled the UK to feel able to upgrade its climate targets, for example. And I've certainly noticed that when I go and give talks, for example, to groups of asset managers, I was expecting that when I talked about a climate emergency, I'd be looked at as a, as a bit nutty. And when I said that um, I thought Extinction Rebellion had been doing a really useful and positive job, I expected also to be looked at as if I was a bit nutty. And I didn't get that at all. Overall, people got it that 
there is a really positive influence um, coming out of people showing that they don't just say they care about the climate, they really, they care so much that they're prepared to stop everything they're doing and take to the streets. Mike, as well as protesting and keeping in mind that not everybody can get involved in these types of protests, what does the evidence say on how best each of us can tackle the climate crisis? Okay, so that's a really good question because it's easy to, you know, when we see how global the challenges are and how interdependent they all are, each one of us is just one 7.8 billionth of the whole of humanity. And piecemeal actions in small places, such as individual action on their own, just tend to get absorbed by the rest of the system and the rest of the system just compensates for them. So at the global level, you don't see any change. So the question we really have to ask realistically and properly is, what can an individual do about this? And the answer turns out to be, there's plenty we we can all do. But instead of saying, how can I cut my impacts? We need to ask a bigger question than that, which is, how can I help to create the conditions under which the big system change that we so urgently need can become possible? And that's a much more empowering question to ask. You know, how else can I exert influence? How can I exert influence in my workplace, uh, in my family, in my social group? How can I influence politicians? How can I make sure that in the run up to whatever next election there is, every politician is already clear that unless they are really careful about the truth and really respectful of all people in the world and really respectful of the environment, then they won't get the votes. So framed up in this way, it's uh, everything that we say and do is an opportunity to push for the systemic change that we need to see. Perhaps you could give us some more hard examples, Mike. What, what things can we do to alter our lives that could be more environmentally friendly? First is to contact our MP. It's um, shocking how f- little correspondence MPs get on environmental issues, and it really makes a difference to them. Second up, in our workplaces, it's important that we all bring our whole selves to work, not just the working bit of ourselves. So, you know, take an environmental consciousness to work. If something's going on in your work that's not respecting the environment, then I know this takes some courage in some workplaces, but, you know, speak about it, put it on the agenda. And the same goes with every social context that we're in. So when we get back to the the world in which we're able to go to the pub, if there's a conversation, if you end up in a conversation, you know, find a way without losing all your friends, conversation that's not respectful of climate change, just challenge it. We need to get to the point where, you know, we don't let these things pass. Uh, we need to get to the point where, you know, nobody says things that are unacceptable or talks in a way that ignores climate change because they know that they're in danger of being pulled up on it. And finally, in the, in the way that we, every time we buy or spend money, just ask ourselves, what supply chains are we supporting? And do we want to support those supply chains? So, you know, if you buy something online, do you like the online company you're buying from? Do you think it's pushing for a better world? Or can you find a way of switching the company you buy from? So all these decisions create pressure for the transition that we need to see. Can you help rank what are the interventions on a personal level that have the most impact versus 
sort of the, the, the smorgasbord of things that we're usually told to do. So in terms of cutting our own impact, which I think is, is a really critical part of the whole p- picture of what we can do, but it's, uh, it's probably not the biggest part. As, I, as I've said, you know, the wider influence thing is, is probably even more important again. But nevertheless, if you look at the average person's carbon footprint, for example, you can divide it up into about four areas that are roughly equal sized. About a quarter of the whole deal is food. The biggest issue there is to reduce meat and dairy. doesn't have to be to zero, but to reduce it, especially less beef and lamb. Um, the second thing is to reduce food waste. And the third thing is to avoid air freight. Moving around, the second quarter of everything in our lives is transport. And for most people, the two big deals are flying and driving. We don't need to do zero flying, but there's no doubt about it that flying is a very high carbon activity. We don't know how to put a long haul flight in the air um, without burning through something like 100 tonnes of liquid hydrocarbon at the moment. And we don't have the solutions within easy reach either. So we need to only fly for really, really good reasons. And driving, you know, even when we electrify our cars, there's still a huge energy and carbon impact in both driving them uh, and manufacturing them in the first place. So we need to drive less, drive more carefully, adopt other means of transport like cycling. Electric bikes, by the way, are brilliant in energy and carbon terms. Moving around to the third part of the pie, uh, the third quarter is our home energy. And I'm not going to talk much about this because we hear so much about it anyway, but it's basic things like good insulation and um, doing what we can with our houses and turning lights off and you know there's a sort of simple and easy end to this which is about everyday personal behaviors like putting a jumper on and closing doors and there's a high tech expensive end to this as well that most of us need some support with which is really great energy solutions especially for our older housing stock and then the fourth quarter of the pie includes i just call it the everything else quarter And that's about everything that we buy. First of all, it's the kind of embodied carbon in all the stuff that we buy. So that's circular economy type thinking. That's making stuff last, buying things that have been sustainably made. And possibly even most importantly, asking, do we need to buy this thing in the first place anyway? You know, it's about mending our clothes, making our clothes last, expecting our furniture to last 100 years, not five years, that kind of thing. And then finally, within that quarter, if we have any money to invest, every time we invest any money, whether it's in a pension scheme or a savings plan or whatever, you know, we need to find a way of making sure that that investment is pushing for the future that we want to see. Mike, one thing that seems to have universal appeal is is carbon capture technologies that draw carbon dioxide uh, out of the atmosphere. Where do we stand with carbon capture at the moment? We're in a real climate emergency and we need to do everything we can to mitigate that. And part of the solution is to take all the carbon back out of the air that we possibly can. So we need to press the button on all the environmentally responsible nature-based solutions that we can do. But having done that, it still won't be enough. So that takes us into mechanical methods for taking carbon 
back out of the air again. They currently are unproven at scale, although it looks very likely that, that, that they will work at scale. They're currently only at small scale. You can buy them at um, something like $700 a tonne, which is hugely expensive. But when they're scaled up, they might come down to something more like $100 a tonne. But it's unclear exactly how much it's possible to scale them up at because all the carbon needs to be stored somewhere. They're not necessarily without risk because if carbon stored, let's say, in the deep ocean were to start leaking back out again, that could potentially be an absolute climate disaster. So it's not something we should take lightly. Uh, and it's not something we can do probably in an unlimited way. If we put serious money into it right now, it looks likely that in a short space of time, we could have some scaled up projects. So, you know, at the moment, there's an outfit called Climeworks that has a small plant in Iceland um, that takes several thousand tons, which is a tiny amount in global scales of carbon back out of the air. You know, at the moment, it's pitiful. But going forward, it looks likely that if we really threw, you know, a good few billion at it, maybe a few hundred billion at it, we could scale it up to a scale that it starts to take, uh, you know, significant carbon out of the air, you know, into the billions of tons per year, which is, which is what we need. But we'll never get to the stage where it's okay. We can just burn the fossil fuel because it's all right. We've got carbon capture and storage, even when we stop burning fossil fuel completely, we are going to need all the carbon capture and storage that we can have to get us out of the mess we're in. But nevertheless, we should be doing it as hard as we can and we need to be pushing that technology as hard as we can, but we shouldn't anywhere in our minds have the idea that in some way, because we've got carbon capture and storage up our sleeves, it takes any of the pressure off the need to cut our carbon footprint in the first place, because it doesn't. Green technologies have become sort of this buzzword. Um, some technologies, as you've suggested in your book, um, you know, are, are considered green, but they may not environmentally be as helpful as they appear on the surface. Um, you talk about the rebound effect. Talk us through what you mean by the rebound effect and, and why it matters. Technology is really interesting because if you look at what really goes on with an efficiency improvement, the, the effect of it by default almost always is that it leads to an increase in the outputs that we have that's even larger than the efficiency improvement. And the result of that is that the inputs end up going up as well. And we see that effect going on in just about every aspect of the economy you can think of. So over the last hundred years, humans have got many times more efficient in their use of lighting, millions of times more efficient in our transport and storage of information, for example. And yet the carbon footprint of both those things has gone up, not down. And you can say the same about home heating. Uh, you can say the same about transport. You can say the same about the production of just about every goods you can think of. The point about efficiency improvement is that it's not bad, but it won't deliver for us a reduction in our resource consumption on its own or a reduction in our pollution, not least carbon dioxide, on its own. It will only work for us if we also constrain our use of resources. 
So we need to do two things. We need to, first of all, stop the fossil fuel coming out of the ground. And secondly, when we are doing that, efficiency gains will then be more valuable than they've ever been before, because they'll be the means by which we can carry on doing the important things in our lives that, that we love doing, despite using less fossil fuel. So Mike, to put this all in context, where are we now with the climate crisis? Are we, are we making a difference yet? If you look at a graph of carbon emissions from human energy use, um, you see that it's been going up and up and up for decades or centuries. And if you look at the last few years, you can see that it's still going up exactly, and I am choosing my words carefully here, exactly as if humans had never noticed that climate change was an issue. If you were viewing from Mars, you would assume from the data that humans haven't spotted climate change yet. And I'm not saying this to be depressing, but I am saying it because it tells us a lot about the extent to which we need to raise our game and the extent to which we need to somehow create a big global system change because the sum of the piecemeal actions is clearly not having any dent at all on the global picture. And the symptoms that we're getting from climate change, so at the global level, uh, the average temperature is about one and a quarter degrees now hotter um, than it was in pre-industrial times as a result of human activity. The IPCC talks about 1.5 degrees being the safe limit. So we're pretty close already. And in terms of the symptoms we're experiencing, so that temperature changes a lot more in some parts of the world. In particular, we're really losing the uh, the ice caps at speed. And it looks as if there's probably nothing we can do to stop the fact that they're going to, you know, they're going to virtually go now. It'll, it'll take some decades, but they've more or less had it, as have the vast majority of our glaciers, whatever we do. We are seeing changes in forestation and in particular drying out of forestation. So a likelihood that the Amazon, for example, which has always been a net carbon sink, it's always absorbed and been an important source of absorbing carbon from, from the atmosphere, may dry out to the point that it actually becomes a net carbon source of emissions. And that's a really critical and dangerous change. It's worth just bearing in mind that there's a big lead time on the climate. So if we were to put the brakes on carbon emissions right now, the climate would still keep getting warmer for a while before it stabilised and started um, going down again. Even if the climate started to get cooler, the ice caps would continue to melt. You know, it's like driving an oil tanker. If you suddenly decide that that oil tanker is going too fast in the wrong direction, it takes a long time to turn it round, and it's no good suddenly waking up and wishing you were going slower because it takes a long time to realize that wish. Thank you, Mike. It was great speaking to you. Thank you. It's a real pleasure. Thanks again to Mike Berners-Lee. You can find a link to the updated edition of There is No Planet B, a practical guide for creating a sustainable future on the podcast webpage at theguardian.com. If you're interested in those making a change, our sister podcast, Today in Focus, recently covered the story of the activist Catherine Flowers, who has been fighting for environmental justice in Alabama. This is part of America's Dirty Divide, 
a Guardian series examining America's environmental inequalities and how climate change will make things worse. You'll be able to find out more by going to the podcast webpage for this episode. Finally, before you go, I want to tell you about some more incredible reporting you can hear about on Today in Focus. On a bank holiday weekend a decade ago, £53 million worth of cocaine was found floating in the sea off the Isle of Wight. Five men were sentenced to a total of 104 years in prison for their part in a crime they say they never committed. Now, as the Court of Appeals prepares to hear fresh evidence, Today in Focus, the Guardian's daily podcast, takes you behind the scenes of the case of the Freshwater Five. Join Anushka Asana for Freshwater, a five-part mini-series from Today in Focus. Have a listen wherever you get your podcasts. That's it from us today. We'll be back next Tuesday. See you then. For more great podcasts from The Guardian, just go to theguardian.com slash podcasts.